Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. You sleep in a home with a roof over you, and you wake up in the morning and you're dry. So it's a lot nicer to have a roof over your head. Well, he was living like an animal. If you reject God, then what is the alternative? You're just an animal. And so God gave him an illustration. His life, he became a parable. This is what becomes of you without God. So his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now, God did something similar with two other men, the two Sauls of the tribe of Benjamin. He chose both of them to teach them and to offer them a great and eternal opportunity. The first Saul started out well and ended up at enmity with God. He ended up an enemy of God, and now he's in hell. Even though the prophet said to him, you could have reigned over Israel forever, your throne, your descendants could have had the, the seat, the royal seat in Jerusalem, so that Christ would have come and inherited Saul's throne. But instead, Saul disobeyed God, God cut him off, and he and his sons were killed on the same day, and no one from his family inherited his throne. It was given to another, to David. And so Christ came and sat on David's throne, not on Saul's throne. So that was the first Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Started out great, but he was under the law, and he ended up terribly. The second Saul of the tribe of Benjamin started out terribly in the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus, persecuting and killing Christians, and he was confronted, and he repented, and he he lived under the covenant of grace. So even though he started out terribly, he ended wonderfully. So those were two men whom God chose, both of them, and offered them just untold blessings for all of eternity. But the one responded in faith through his life, and the other responded selfishly. The one went to hell, and Paul went to heaven. So the same is true with Nebuchadnezzar. God chose Nebuchadnezzar to work through him, but what came of it all would depend on how Nebuchadnezzar responded. Verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. What a key point that is. You knew it. You knew it. There's no excuse. And that is true of billions of people today in so many ways. They know that there is a God who created them. They know they owe their life to him. They should be humble and repent before him, but they don't. And on judgment day, God will say, you knew it. You knew it. You were given time after time after time to believe in him. Verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. They're profaning the vessels for the temple. What does profane mean? 
Today we speak of profanity. Profane means common. So to take what is God's and to treat it as though it were common is profane. So the Israelites would profane the Sabbath if they worked on Saturday, treating that day as a common day. That's what is meant when Jesus said, when he talked about profaning the Sabbath. Now today, we speak of swear words or profanity, and we take biblical concepts to describe a foul mouth. So God says, do not swear by heaven, by earth, by God's footstool. Don't swear by God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because when you swear by God, you still end up breaking your promise anyway, and now you're committing a much more serious sin because you're treating God as though he were common. You're profaning God. So don't swear. And profanity, much of profanity, has to do with the common base human biological functions of waste production and reproduction. And so people take those terms for those things and they use them crudely because they intentionally want to be vulgar. And we call that profanity because it's profane. They take the common things that are true of all men, but they're the modest things. The Bible says these are the modest parts of our bodies. And they take those common things and they put them up front and center. So they are trying to say, look how common I can be. I talk about going to the bathroom all the time. And so that's profanity in other similar forms of profanity. So Belshazzar was profaning the vessels of the Lord that God told the Levites, the priesthood, to dedicate to the service of the living God. So you have drunk from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. How absurd. All these false gods that cannot even hear your words, they can't see you, they don't know anything, they're dumb. They're just inanimate objects, and those you bow down to, but the living God who holds your breath in his hand, he is the one that you mock, you reject, you ignore, you blaspheme, you fool. Verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parson. Now, I don't know Aramaic, so I'm not sure how to pronounce these, but I'd like to take a diversion for a while, a little rabbit trail, and talk about Aramaic. Now, literally, these words mean numbered, weighed, and dividers. Numbered, numbered, weighed, dividers. That's what these words would be if we translated them directly from Aramaic into English. Now, in a normal Bible study, 
if you talk about Hebrew and Greek, people's eyes glaze over real quickly. And if you mention Aramaic, half of the class gets up and leaves. But here, since these words are in Aramaic, this is probably a good time to talk about the language that we call Aramaic. It is an ancient language, and I'd like to discuss it a bit. So do your best to to stay tuned in, because it's somewhat interesting. The entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for some exceptions. Here, this whole section of Daniel, not in Hebrew. The Aramaic section of Daniel begins in chapter 2, and it goes through to the end of chapter 7. Now, why don't we read the verse where the book of Daniel transitions from Hebrew to Aramaic? Why don't we look at that? It's in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Daniel 2, 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. So with that verse, Daniel switches from Hebrew, which is the official language of the Jews to this day, and it's the language of their scriptures for the most part. Daniel switches from writing in Hebrew to writing in Aramaic. Now by mentioning this to the reader, that the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, he's cluing in his readers, and that's why I'm switching to Aramaic, because it's the vernacular, it's the mother tongue of the king and of his court. And so the next chapters are all about the king and the kingdom of Babylon. So it's very natural for me to present it in Aramaic. So he switches. Now we read the English Old Testament in the English New Testament, so we don't notice. But the translators have to notice because they have to know Aramaic to be able to continue to translate. Aramaic is an ancient language from the Middle East, and it is a Semitic language similar to Hebrew and Phoenician and other Canaanite languages. Aramaic was like a lingua franca, or like Greek, it became the official language of government and of commerce between nations. Today, that language is English. English is used all over the world for business. In China, English is being taught to hundreds of millions of Chinese. So there were many who tried liberals Back in the 70s, they wanted to force Spanish to be the international language. That didn't fly. But English is the language of government, finance, science, and entertainment. So the world is learning English. And that was true of Greek. The ancient world, a good chunk of it, was Hellenized. They all spoke Greek. Well, Aramaic was like that. It was the official language, and it was adopted. Their written alphabet was adopted for other languages, so other languages could be written down. Because remember, this is sometime after the Tower of Babel 
when God created at least a hundred totally different languages instantaneously. And so they had to figure out how to write them down. And so the Sumerians in the Middle East, they invented the alphabet God because they had to look to somebody to help them create an alphabet and they didn't like the true God. So they created an alphabet God along with all their other gods. Today, the remnant of that God we find in our soups. Aramaic predates and was ancestral to Arabic. Aramaic became the language of the common people in Israel over about a half of a millennium before Christ. So for about 500 years, the Israelites spoke Aramaic. Now, they would also speak Hebrew, and they'd also speak Greek eventually, but Aramaic was their language, and that's largely because of the Babylonian captivity and the influence of Aramaic in their part of the world, so that became their native tongue. Like Jews today who go to synagogue, they go to Hebrew school, they learn Hebrew, but they live in Arvada and they speak English. They're very similar back then. Jesus often spoke Aramaic to relate to the people. Now, I mentioned a good chunk of Daniel is in Aramaic. Ezra also. A good chunk of the book of Ezra is in Aramaic. And then, as you go through, read the Bible, you find out that there are words or phrases here and there that are in Aramaic, and that's natural, especially there are times when there's a trade route going through a city that's mentioned in the Bible that some events occur there. And so the Bible story will choose a few words from a different language, and people will say, well, why did the Bible writers switch the language for that word? And it's because there was a trade route, and so that word, whatever it was, if it if it was donkeys, for example, that word, they were traded with the far people, uh, and so that word came into their language. So much of that is understood today reasonably well. Jesus would speak primarily Aramaic to the people, but he also spoke Greek, and he also was fluent in Hebrew, though not all the population of Jews were fluent in Hebrew. So the New Testament was written in Greek. Because if it was written in Hebrew, many of the Jews in Israel couldn't read it. And certainly all the Romans and Greeks and North Africans, they couldn't read it, but they could all read Greek. So the New Testament is written in Greek, but there are many, many Aramaic phrases and words like in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus took the child by the hand, the little girl that had died, and they made fun of him because he said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And he said, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. So that's Luke 5.41. Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. That's an example of many in the New Testament where Aramaic is part of the text. Like at John chapter 20, where Jesus said, Mary, and she turned and said to him, Rabboni, 
which is to say teacher. Rabboni, an Aramaic word. I'll give you a few other Aramaic words and one maybe you'll get a kick out of. But in Mark 14, Abba, Father, Abba is Aramaic. And modern Hebrew has now borrowed that term. So the Jews today will speak of Abba, Father. And I think English has even borrowed that, although we changed it to Dada. Abba is Dada to us, or especially to our kids. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is Aramaic. The Lord come. That is Maranatha. Maranatha is Aramaic. And Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. In Matthew 27, verse 46, around the ninth hour, Jesus shouted in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for Psalm 22, verse 1. And some of the people there, they thought he was calling for Eli, Elijah the prophet but he was not. He was quoting, and the translation is here. Matthew gives us the translation. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, notably, the 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ, it brought in a billion dollars at the box office. It was about Jesus being crucified, and it's pretty fascinating that it's the most successful foreign language film ever in America. Many people have seen it, and they don't even remember that it wasn't in English. The whole film was in Aramaic. And Mel Gibson, who is an awfully wicked person, and I don't know where his heart and soul is before God, but he's awfully evil. And he hired a scholar to translate the script into Aramaic. And that scholar used modern Aramaic and where there were vocabulary words that don't exist today, he went to Daniel and Ezra and he used those words also. And of course, it came out with subtitles in English and other languages and made a huge impact on our culture reminding millions of people of how Jesus suffered for us. He suffered on the cross, and if you recall, Pilate said, right on the cross, he is the king of the Jews. And that angered the Pharisees and the priest and the high priest, Caiaphas, they didn't like that. They said, "Put." he said he was the king of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate said, no, it is what I've written. He is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. And that was written in three languages, but not Aramaic. It was written in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Latin being the language of the Roman Empire. And by the way, when Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1 in Aramaic, there were translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. And some parts of those remain to this day, but the Aramaic translations of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses that he wrote, they are called the Targum, 
the Aramaic Targum, and they're not just a translation. You know how the Living Bible is not really a translation, it's a paraphrase? Well, the Targums were like that, only on steroids. They would be a bit of a translation, mostly interpretation and paraphrase, and they would include interpretation at will. They would go on for a sentence. They'd add a sentence or two to a verse to explain what they thought it meant. So, and the Amplified Bible is not nearly as far down that path as the Targum. Uh, but the Amplified Bible will say the same thing in 10 different ways, so you get the idea. Okay, so that's the end of our rabbit trail where we're talking about the Aramaic language. Now we're back to the text. And these four words, and they're many, many tekel uparsim, and Daniel is going to interpret them. And so we're at verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Now that word was uparsin, but Daniel is skipping right to the interpretation. The interpretation is the Medes and the Persians. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Remember we read about that in Jeremiah, and history records this also. And this is as per Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first dream of the great image with him as the head and the arms, the chest and arms of bronze, those two arms, that's the Medes and the Persians. The repetition of the word many, we do that in English and sometimes when you repeat something, the second time you say it brings it a little further, your meaning. So by saying it twice, it's emphatic. It's like it's past tense, but now it's past perfect. It's done. And that means that you are done, Belshazzar, that God numbered and he numbered, like he's done numbering. He decided the length of your reign and that length is up. The idea men have even today that God will weigh their works. You know, this idea that you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. God uses that as an analogy, but God uses it different than the ancient Egyptians used it. They believe this, so the, the belief today can be traced back to the Egyptians, and it's very possible that the Babylonians borrowed this idea from the Egyptians, that when you die, the gods would weigh your life on an actual balance and your good and your evil, and whichever was more significant, whichever was heavier, that's what you were. So if your good deeds outweighed your bad, then you had a good afterlife. If your bad outweighed your good, then you're in big trouble. So, you wonder, is that a reasonable thought by pagans? Is that reasonable to think that? Is that how they judge? So God will 
weigh our actions and then judge in that way, I don't think that's how pagans or unbelievers judge. For example, in their own courts, if a man is charged with murder, do they say, well, he's had four children and he raised them and he's only murdered two people, so really he's up by two. So how could we convict him? We let him go because we weighed and you brought more in than you took out, so you're okay. They don't do that. If a servant stole money from Belshazzar or from Pharaoh, would they have said, well, he was my servant for 10 years. He helped to increase my wealth. And so he stole all this gold. But look at all the good he did for me, so he's not guilty. Did they do that? They didn't do that. Of course they didn't, and they don't. So why would they think that the judge of all the world would do this when they would not? That is not a concept of justice. It's a concept of obscuring justice. But God does use this as a metaphor for his own judgment. And the way God uses it, everybody is guilty. Everybody gets weighed and everybody is guilty. And so either you go to him for forgiveness or you're guilty. In fact, in Psalm 62, written by King David, he wrote in verse 9, you know, pretty much everybody who gets weighed is found wanting. In verse 9, David wrote, Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. So here's justice, good deeds, and if that's their life, they want that part to go down. But they're lighter than vapor. They're lighter than air. That part goes up, and the bad goes down. And it's everybody. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. It's everybody, me and you. Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, why would he do this? The prophecy was against the king. But I have an idea why I think he would do this, and I see people do this kind of thing all the time. He wants to show that he's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of Daniel's God. He's fearless. And so even though this Hebrew prophet spoke against the king to show how big a man Belshazzar is, He's going to reward Daniel anyway. This kind of behavior is repeated 10,000 times over by those small and great, Christian and unbeliever. And two examples. Obama meets with tyrants to show how big he is. And Focus on the Family meets with Planned Parenthood to show how big they are. But such behavior is also is also just as easily explained as an attempt by men to bolster their own image. It's not showing something real. It's just showing man's effort to show how great he is. I remember when George W. Bush was elected and my dear friends, true believer Republicans, conservatives, and they said to me, they said, I think Bush is going to bring up Bill Clinton on charges of treason. And I said, I think you're insane. 
Bush is going to do that to Clinton? I mean, what world are you on? Bush is going to treat Bill Clinton like he was an honored dignitary. That's it. They'll become best friends, but he's sure not going to charge him with treason. If anything, Bush will commit the same bad behavior that you think should be charged with treason. So people do this kind of Belshazzar thing all the time. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And who killed him? Doesn't even matter. Doesn't matter. Verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And so Daniel's story will continue. Now he's into his third king. So he has survived. May God bless you.